Well, in case you haven't noticed, um, this time of year, the church calendar invites us to reflect on larger themes, uh, larger doctrinal themes, if you will. So the last two weeks, last two Sundays, have included the Ascension of Jesus, which we celebrated the Sunday after Ascension, which always happens on a Thursday, and then, of course, the Holy Spirit's arrival at Pentecost, singular events that we remember, we reflect on, and uh, hopefully are continuing to turn over in us the, the reality of what it means to have the God that we have and for the world to be as it is. So today on Trinity Sunday, that pattern continues. The question that we applied to Ascension and to Pentecost is essentially the same question for today. Why does it matter to us? Why does the Trinity matter to us? More specifically, how does our belief in the triunity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how does it define our lives? How does it define our worship? And as it relates to our scripture readings today, why did Jesus instruct his disciples to baptize in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit? And why does Paul offer these words as a final greeting to the Corinthians in his second letter to them? He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So, About the doctrine of the Trinity, St. Augustine said this. He wrote, In no other subject is error more dangerous, or inquiry more laborious, or the discovery of truth more rewarding than in the knowledge of the Trinity. In short, what's he saying? He's saying it's a big deal. It's a very big deal. And that's a pretty good uh, leaping off point as we explore the Trinity, but reminding ourselves that we only have about 25 minutes to do so, right? (laughs) So much could be said. I can't say it all. So much is, I think, at stake. And I hope that, above all things, what I do and say will be, in Augustine's words, rewarding for us. Something to take and to keep moving forward in Jesus because of what we understand about the nature of our God. And I would say the nature of reality because of our God. And that's really my first point. As Christians, we don't believe the triune nature of God defines just the Christian faith. We don't. We believe that it defines reality. We believe God is personal. We also believe that God is relational, that God is relationship. And this is how and why everything exists as it does for humans. Why is that true? Because among all beings, we are uniquely self-conscious. Like we are attuned to our own sense of self, of personhood. But we're also uniquely attuned to other persons needing and pursuing relational connection and belonging. We have these attunements, right? These attunements aren't merely our highly developed and evolutionary instinct of cooperation, you know, to improve our our chances of survival in a very harsh world. This very human, this very deep union of the personal and of the relational, it reflects the image and likeness of God, who we are, individually and together reflects the nature of God. The divine life is actually invested uniquely in us, the crown of creation. And so reality as we experience it and understand it is guided by the truth of who God is and how God is and how we've been made because of who God is. So we could actually say this, we could say that there's an absolute in God, in, you know, to which reality as we know and experience it, that reality to which it clings and by which it's shaped, by which it's understood. This absolute 
of God's being defines human experience. It's something that doesn't change even if we do. It's something that's true even if we believe otherwise. And that something, what we're really saying, that something is the nature of God as love. Now, all of us work with a pretty paltry definition of love, um, partially because of how we've experienced it, partially because of kind of our cultural definitions of it, and partially because we are not God. And as well as we love, we never love well enough. Okay, so that something, that absolute is the nature of God as love, perfect love, active love by which the world was created, self-giving love by which humanity was shaped and, and by which the world is held together. Massive. And absent that love, absent the love that God is, nothing else is. Whatever, wherever love is diminished, everything else gets diminished, doesn't it? Wherever love rises we rise love holds the world together and it began and it begins in god because god is love god isn't just loving god is a relationship of love so love is the absolute and that's the first thing that the trinity means it must mean to us it's fundamental because god is the world is because of the way god is it's the way the world is or is meant to be as the tangible expression and object of the love that is god that's what the world is, the object of God's love. And we can deny, we can resist that, but we can't change it. It's good news, whether or not we believe it is. So here's the second thing that the Trinity means. The individual, and this is where I want to spend most of my time th this morning. The individual, though infinitely wonderful, infinitely like essential, is not after all everything. That's harder for some of us to believe than for others. The individual is not the basic unit of humanity even, functionally, which might sound strange to us. But the basic unit, so to speak, of humanity is a relationship, a community of one to another or others. And this is where, like I said, I want to put most of the focus this morning because this, is, this can really sort of um, upset the apple cart for us, right? Defend the mind to reveal the heart, and I think that's a good thing. So let's go back to the origin story, just as we did last week. Some of it happens to be in our lectionary this week with obvious purpose, but then the creation of, of, of the man and the woman is, is sort of recast again a chapter later um, in Genesis 1 and 2. Of all the things, I want you to think about this, put them all together, of all the things that God saw as good, as optimal, or as I talked about last week, as tobah, as best, as a superlative Everything he saw that was good in the creation of the world, there was only one immediate thing that was not good. Do you remember what it was? Is? That the first person was alone. Yeah. But interestingly, in Genesis 2.18, there isn't actually a Hebrew word in any manuscripts for alone. We infer it. The absence of a word for alone makes it read more accurately like this. It is not good for the man to simply be. In other words, he should be with. And what happens in the next verse? Another person was made, distinct and different. And remember, this is in the specific context of, not yet of procreation, Right? but of purpose, of shared purpose, working and keeping the garden, stewardship of this cosmic temple we call Eden, the garden of delight, 
where God is with his people. And it's clear in the text that when the Lord said, let us make them, he always intended to make humanity a them, a them. And that means God made the first, listen, this is important, he made the first person with autonomy, but not ultimately for autonomy. Not for autonomy. Individuality, friends, is our God-given distinction. It is our dignity, but it's not our destiny. It's not our God-given purpose. So just consider this. The whole vocabulary of human purpose and dignity, right, that we talk about, it's a project, actually, of reciprocity and of recognition, what we see in one another, thinking about or relating to humans in community, sharing something unique that we laud, that we lift up that we point out in one another. And, you know, sure, we can believe in, we can rehearse our own worth and dignity, our beauty, you know, and our belovedness. I mean, I think self-talk can be, like, really encouraging and helpful. But, you know, it makes me think of that SNL sketch back in the 80s with Stuart Smalley. You remember him? Looking in the mirror saying, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Right. But in the end, if you think about it, our belovedness only becomes real all the way down if another declares it. Or better yet, they make it absolutely undeniable that they believe it. It becomes really real if someone loves you and lives like it. You know, and there's also in our culture this idea floating around that we have to love ourselves before we can love others. Eh, Look, I know what they mean by that. You know, I, I know what they're after. But how do you start loving yourself? How do you start doing that? Think about how contingent that statement even is, really. You should love yourself. That in and of itself is a reciprocal thing. Like, that's who, who says you should love yourself? Well, someone else says that you should, that you're lovable. Someone telling you you should love yourself. Someone else affirming that there are reasons for loving yourself that are greater than what you may feel about yourself. And my point is, we don't learn to love ourselves in a vacuum. I think that statement is really interesting. And we look in our culture and people are withering trying to completely sort of in autonomously figure out who they are and thereby figure out how to love. We don't learn, uh, learn to love ourselves in a vacuum, but by, by trying to get, you know, we, we don't do this by trying to get some self-worth principles or abstractions about human dignity to stick finally into our hearts and our minds to situate us so that we can then be a source of love for others. How do we learn to love ourselves? With help. As others help us in community, as others love us. Love itself sources love. And it begins in the relationship of divine love that we call the Trinity, after whom we're made. So think about this other thing, the whole idea of counseling. We have some wonderful counselors and therapists who are part of this, this fellowship. The whole idea of counseling, its inherent value, is not to deliver like some abstract tips for self-love and improvement, is it? You can get that from the internet. And half of that, half of it is rubbish, by the way. But a counselor or a therapist or a pastor gives you a face. They give you a life. They give you a voice sitting across from you telling you what, in a perfect world, your parents 
And your family and your neighbors and your friends and coworkers should always be and always have been telling you about yourself in a perfect world. About yourself and about themselves in relation to you. What? Saying what? I see you. I'm here for you. We're in this together. And I'm sure that I've quoted the neurobiologist and psychiatrist Kurt Thompson before when he said this, we all come into the world looking for someone looking for us. Newborns are looking for a face, he says. And it's the first and most formative reality for them. They're looking for a face. Adults need the face of another as a kind of mirror. We rely on them, really, whether we want to or not. And it can be really problematic, can it? What face or faces have we seen? What have they said to us? What faces are we looking for these days? What are we finding? How's this going for us? And I think, you know, if you, you listen and, you know, it's not, it's not everything, but to listen to kind of sort of what's coming out sociologically and, uh, and otherwise, it's, not, it's arguably not going too well. Many theorize, you know, that, our, just, that it's our, been our unbridled prosperity, our you know, our production and consumerism and all the technologies that's produced, they've pushed us farther apart, not only as families, but as a society. And what's it done? It's obscured our faces to one another. Made us more broad and efficient and capable by some measures, but more shallow and impatient and conditional in our relationships. We feel this more transient in our connections because of our pursuits or what sort of the culture we've made that seems to be kind of like nobody at the wheel but still telling us, hey, this is where you're going. This is where we're all going. But we're no less in need of faces looking at us, looking at them. But it's just more difficult to connect. And you've heard me talk about the Notre Dame philosopher Charles Taylor some, who I think was really prophetic. He calls ours an age of the buffered self. Buffered. Self-protected, really. An age of atomized individualism. A-T-O-M. Atomized. Reduced. And yet everyone, everybody still, in an age like ours, still longs for a people with whom to identify and by whom they are known and understood. It's in us to be in relationship. We find ourselves escaping, though, into ghettos of sameness and affirmation with labels and with lists of shared sympathies and then, of course, shared enemies. And that's how we relate. We have all these economic and social constructs that we've made in the late modern West that are supposed to ground our sense of identity and belonging. Where do we find ourselves? We hope to find ourselves in the economics of our zip codes and our wardrobes, in the moralisms of our political tribes, in a reductive but unassailable management for who we are sexually and otherwise. And even in one particular generation, pitted over against the other. And the truth is, authentic, organic relationships actually include the built-in dynamics of difference and of disagreement and of diversity. They are meant to shape us. They're meant to support us, but also challenge us. And these are harder to come by, or let's be honest, they're just less attractive in an increasingly self-protective and cynical culture. A culture in which we reflectively buffer ourselves, protect ourselves, 
And it's, you know, we're seemingly lost to Taylor's alternative, the pre-modern alternative, the poorest self that grows up in reciprocal and organic relationships to others, in hard connections, but still that can shape us for the good, for the ill, but also in ways that we aren't so curating and protecting. And you might be saying this, well, wait a minute. You know, we all know in the traditional pre-modern West, the individual was often squashed beneath the weight of shared identity or the family or the society of which he or she was a part. And that is true. It is true. You know, in that world, the ultimate hero was the person who sacrificed his or herself for the sake of the collective. And that was very problematic in many ways. But now in our day, in the late modern West, as we say, heroism is embodied in the atomized individual who defines oneself over against whatever them might want to stifle you and, or might want you to conform to them. And in this project, community in diversity is diminished. It's qualified. And that this is going on is undeniable. And here's an interesting aside. Did you know that in the pre-Renaissance world, so roughly pre-14th century, portraits were almost never painted focusing on individuals and their features? You look it up. Ask chat GPT. Show me some. You're right. Uh, and then in the post-Renaissance world, we've reflexively tended toward the opposite, casting the individual at the center. Something massively, you know, massive shifted and shifted massively. Here's my point, though. As Christians, we don't believe there's any conflict between the dignity and elevation of the individual with the fundamental reality and the necessity of the communal. Why? Because of the nature of God and, and God's intent for us and for the world. So whether we belong to like the pre or the post-Renaissance, so to speak, relationships, they have to be redeemed. Our way of being together constantly has to be redeemed to follow back toward that which God has intended for us because of who God is. We have to be saved from our products of squashing and reducing. And our relationships, friends, they depend on people relearning what love is, how to do it. We believe we were made for relationships that are patterned after the God who is relationship, who is love. The perfect and relational uh, triune God. One, uh, his, the relationship that is God is one of dynamic personal servanthood within the Trinity and mutual um, glory giving. Think about it. I mean, it's triumph through submission. Christ, God embodied in Christ in obedience, there being, by uh, being glorified. It's this relationship of receiving by giving, fullness through generosity, and this, this love within God like energy. It never dissipates, but only takes another form and expression, continually giving itself and emanating out to us. Simultaneously doing what? Elevating each person in the community to which they belong. Are you still with me? Look, we, we believe in love for what it really is, not what it has become. 
Not love narrowly conditioned by shared morals or shallow sentimentalism or obsessive sensualism, but love that is patient and kind, that does not envy or boast, that is not arrogant or rude, that does not insist on its own way, that is not irritable or resentful. Love that does not rejoice at sin, but rejoices with the truth. Love that bears, believes, hopes, and endures all things, come what may. These are Paul's words to the Corinthians in his first letter. And this is what Paul, what I just described, this is the kind of love that Paul envisioned and sought to see embodied despite the staggering challenge, staggering challenge of the very complicated diversity in the church of Corinth. It's where the rubber met, met the road. This is why he blessed them as he did at the end of his second letter. It's not an accident. How did he bless them? It's in our reading today. With the grace, love, and blessing that flow from the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He blessed them with the reality that is, that is absolute in the middle of the hard work of trying to live it out, work it out. He blessed them with the God who is love. So it's pretty clear why Jesus would invoke the triunity of God, telling the eleven to baptize new disciples in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Was this a formula or a formality? Was this purely about expressing the divine authority by which people are converting to the Christian faith? Of course not. Love is why. It's an expression of love. It's a baptism into love. Baptism is not merely our entrance into the church, though it is that. Baptism is our entrance into the perfect relationship of love upon which the church in all reality is grounded. It's that massive. It's why we call it sacramental. It's this incredible thing we get to participate in that invokes something beyond, so mysteriously beyond our imagination, a kind of love so deep and so broad and so capable that, that it would blow, blows our minds because we can't experience it anything, anywhere else. It's a rebirth into renewed humanity, stripping sin of its dignity, degrading, and community-squashing power. The church, look, is simply a witness to that divine relationship. It's just drawing on it as an embodiment of it. We're trying to live into that truth, that absolute, that reality, which is why, of course, it's so, it's so um, just agonizing when the church fails us. And the church does. We fail one another. It's one of the deepest disappointments that we could ever experience. wonder why. Because we know what's at stake. We know the love that we're meant to have for one another and by which the world will know that we are Jesus' disciples, as he said. But here's the thing. The community that Jesus founded still struggles to live according to the love with which he founded it. We do that as individuals. We struggle with it. And friends, you know, this shortcoming is one of the most important truths we can finally accept, hard as it is to do so. What is that? The church is not God. The church needs God. Always. At our best, what we're doing every Sunday is not only proclaiming the beauty of the relationship that is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but we're actually trying to re rehearse and remember how dependent we are on a truth beyond ourselves, on a power beyond our lived reality, on a goodness beyond our failure, on an absolute in the middle of life that is an ocean as deep and daunting as it is beautiful and rich and wondrous. The church at our best is a basic unit of humanity trying to live out the truth 
of our reconciliation to God and one another. No one, no matter how hurt or disillusioned, stands apart from the difficulty or the responsibility. We're all on display wrestling with something that is just way too hard for us to do on our own. So our belief in this ultimate reality that is grounded in the perfect relationship of the triune God, is, it's part of why we don't believe other gods are another way to, but, uh, uh, you know, are around the triune God. If you think about it, if you look at it, if you study it, virtually all religions apart from Christianity either isolate the individual as a morally responsible actor, as a lone spiritual seeker, or as a cog in a communal wheel. They install their deities as either examples to or judges of their adherents. Many faiths will actually tell us that love and unity are the goal, but I've yet to discover one apart from Christianity that can really tell us why, 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 why is that the goal? To what authority, to what grounding, to what absolute are we drawing on or are we depending? They'll tell us we are one race. They'll tell us that we are connected, that we're responsible for one another. But the more you ask why, the more you sort of pick at the flaking uh, paint, the more you realize there's nothing behind the drywall except another person and their ideas, their ideals. Christianity alone tells us we are connected because God is connection. And that he came to connect us back into that connection. Came and suffered to do so. Came to be like us, to know us, to redeem us. Christianity alone tells us that we belong to one another because we belong to God first. Christianity alone tells us that this unity is one not by our own striving, but because the loving relationship at the center of reality came to us. Son and Spirit, into the mess, into the mire, into the strife, into the division to make it real, to make the love real, to make the absolute real to us. Not merely to just show us something or to tell us something or to tell us to do something, which is in many ways how you can describe, define religion in our world or throughout history. Show us something, tell us something, tell us to do something. God came to help us to be the power we need to be restored to change us, to keep changing us so that we can stop pursuing our true longings in false ways. He came to give us the love that we cannot very often, most often give, give ourselves. And I'll just close with this. You may not realize it. We do this every Sunday. But Jesus gave us this meal, not just to remember or even to celebrate his sacrifice for us, he gave this to us, this meal, as a way to participate in his fellowship with the Father by the Spirit who fell upon him and us at our baptisms. When we take and eat, this is really, really important. When we take and eat, the Father is ever giving to us. The Son is ever living in us. And the Spirit is ever moving among us. In this moment of communion, this is, this is I, I don't want to say it's a drama because it's a dramatization, but I want to say it's this incredible image, this picture 
of both the beginning and the end when we come together united in Christ. In this moment of communion, the relationship who is God is mediating his own unity to us in an undeniable act of giving and sharing and communing with him and one another. Why do we take it so seriously? Because this is what Jesus gave us to make reality real, to make the absolute something we can hold on to in our hands. This meal is making reality real to us again because it's pointing us backwards and it's pointing us forwards to the love of God in creation and the love of God in redemption. To love not merely felt, but, but love that's active and demonstrated and determined, that's tangible, that's experiential. There's nothing like it out there anywhere else. When you come to this table, brothers and sisters, be encouraged that you don't have to try to hold all of this staggering truth, all of heaven in your head. Instead, Jesus invites us to simply hold bread in our hands. To believe that love is a gift and it's the reality to which we return together every Sunday. The reality of God. It's a relationship, as divine communion, and as the one inviting us to belong in Him, with Him. This is how we got here, His love. And it's how we'll keep going, each of us, all of us together. Lord, we thank You. We thank You. We thank You. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.